Liz, have you figured out what you're going to be for Halloween? I have. I'm going to be Doctor Who. Oh, because time travel is awesome? That's certainly part of it. I wish I could time travel. You could time travel through your computer's history if you made regular backups. Oh yeah, backups can be a lifesaver when you needed to see how a file looked a few weeks ago and you want to go back in time. Or if your computer gets infected with nasty malware and you're having trouble getting rid of all of it. Right, you can just restore from an older backup. So Jeffrey, what are you going to be for Halloween? I wasn't sure, but I think I'll just carry a microphone and an external hard drive around and tell people I'm a backup singer. Hello, and welcome to Loose Leaf Security. I'm Liz Dennies. And I'm Jeffrey Thomas, and we're your hosts. Loose Leaf Security is a show about making good computer security practice for everyone. We believe you don't need to be a software engineer or security professional to understand how to keep your devices and data safe. In every episode, we tackle a typical security concern or walk you through a recent incident. There's some unusual news about Twitter privacy recently. The New York Times reported that in 2015, a senior engineer at Twitter had been recruited by the Saudi government to look at the accounts of dissidents and privacy researchers. The employee was a site reliability engineer, which is a position that I've interviewed for at several companies. They test your technical skills, and of course they do a background check, but there's really very little to test whether you're the sort of person who's going to go access private data, or whether you're fine now, but you're going to be groomed, as the Times puts it, after you're hired. And by the nature of the work, site reliability engineers need pretty unrestricted access to the systems they're responsible for to debug unexpected problems. According to the Times, they weren't able to determine whether he passed data onto the Saudi government, but they ended up firing him and sending notices to the people whose accounts he accessed. This included people who worked for the Tor Project, a worldwide system of proxies for privacy and censorship circumvention, as well as other privacy researchers, journalists, and similar folks. You might have heard about these notices before. Google has similar ones. They say that they suspect a state-sponsored attacker of trying to break into your account, and it's a sign that you should beef up your account security in a hurry. Except in this case, because the threat was from inside Twitter, no amount of strong passwords or two-factor authentication could have helped. I guess it's a good reminder that, however much you trust a big company as a whole, it's still made up of a lot of people with a lot of different personal motivations. The Verge got their hands on a contract between Google and an Android manufacturer, and it seems that Google's now requiring manufacturers to install security updates for Android for at least two years. The rules apply to phones with 100,000 devices sold or more. Starting this past July, manufacturers were required to apply security updates to 75% of those devices, and that goes up to 100% in January. Updates must cover bugs found within the last 90 days, which is still a pretty long time, but it's a lot better than what most Android phones have been delivering for a while. This is a massive security improvement for lower-end Android devices. As we discussed in our episode comparing Android and iOS security, Apple's devices tend to get security updates for four or five years, but even two years was unusually high for all but the most expensive Android phones. Google has been discussing improvements in their requirements for manufacturers, but the leaked contract provides concrete details and they sound like a meaningful step forwards. Recently, the government agency behind healthcare.gov announced that files on 75,000 people had been breached. These files originated from the system that supports you signing up for insurance on an insurance website, where it redirects you through healthcare.gov to confirm eligibility. The latest news is that they believe that no banking or confidential health information was leaked, but enough personal information was accessed to leave people at risk of identity theft. I guess in the modern world, with everything computerized, these sorts of things happen. 
You should use unique passwords on each website in case of a password breach, but there's so much more data at risk too. The agency will offer free credit monitoring services to people affected. This is getting outside the realm of personal digital security, but there are steps you can take to be proactive, like checking your credit reports periodically, and it's worth looking those up. In better privacy news, Apple has a new privacy portal that lets you download all the data associated with your Apple ID from a single page, and also deactivate or delete your account if you want. This came out of a GDPR requirement, but it's now available for people in the U.S. and some other countries too. I went there because I'm curious what they have. I have an iPhone, but I use iCloud for almost nothing. And they said it will take up to seven days to give me a download link. Yeah, same for me. They say it's a security feature to make sure it's actually you requesting the data, which is great. We talked last episode about how some of these GDPR data download buttons have the risk that someone who breaks into your account might run off with all your data in just one click. They emailed both my regular email and my backup email to let me know that the request was happening. So hopefully, if my Apple ID had been stolen, I would have seen at least one of these emails and been able to cancel it. A little less good Apple privacy news. Researcher Jose Rodriguez discovered three lock screen bypass vulnerabilities in iOS 12, which lets you view the phone's address book and photo album without unlocking it. One of them still works in iOS 12.0.1. The videos are pretty fascinating. Basically, the trick is to use Siri, Apple's voice-based assistant, to enable voiceover and accessibility mode. iOS intentionally lets you do a couple of restricted things from a lock screen, like text someone back who's calling you. But if you use accessibility mode, you can seemingly access restricted parts of the interface, like attaching photos to the text message. A workaround for now is to disable Siri from the lock screen. In the settings app, there's an option in the Siri and search menu to do that. Since the only way to enable accessibility mode with the phone locked is to ask for Siri to turn on voiceover, this prevents the lock screen bypass vulnerability from working. I'm pretty paranoid, and honestly, I've never enjoyed having a voice assistant for my phone anyway, so I've just kept Siri off entirely. To completely turn off Siri, not just turn off how and when to launch Siri, you can go to the restrictions part of settings, which is now under screen time. You can disable Siri entirely there and prevent it from running at all. That makes sense. Siri's gotten increasingly powerful in recent versions of iOS, so if you don't use it, you might as well reduce your attack surface. Last episode, we talked about a bunch of nasty things someone with physical access to your computer could do, and now it's difficult to detect what that attacker did, even if you knew they did something. If an attacker has gotten into your system because they had physical access, or maybe you suspect you've gotten malware or ransomware, you can't assume you'll track down everything that's been affected. The safest way to recover is to abandon what you have and restore from backup. We'll talk more about avoiding malware in our next episode when we talk about operating systems and software in more depth. Backups are also really handy to have on hand in case you lose your laptop or your computer suffers from a hardware problem and you need to get to files you can't get to anymore. They also make switching to a new computer a lot easier. Yeah, availability is a pretty important consideration in security. If you don't have a computer, you'd technically be secure, but that's a rather impractical way to be secure. There's a handful of different ways to do backups and a few main things to consider when deciding how to backup your computers and files. When people talk about backups, they might mean a variety of things. The simplest version of a backup is just a single second copy of all your files. Okay, I have to admit something. I don't actually do regular backups of all my files, but now that we've researched this episode, I think I really need to start. But I have been keeping a second copy of my most important files, like my tax returns, pay statements, personal projects I'm working on like blog posts and code I'm writing, in a separate place. You just do this all manually? Yeah, when I'm done with filing taxes, I make sure to save a PDF to my downloads directory, 
and also copy that to a cloud storage service. But it doesn't cover everything, and I did have an old laptop's hard drive die on me recently, so I'm starting to think about keeping a copy of everything. Yeah, keeping a single copy of all your files can be really helpful if your hard drive fails and you can't access anything, but a simple copy of the contents of your hard drive isn't so helpful if you've made this copy after you've already deleted something that you later realized you still needed. Or if you figure out you've had malware on your computer for a while, and your backup copy was made after your computer got infected. A better backup system will do versioned backups instead of just having a single copy whenever you make it. A versioned backup system will allow you to recover from multiple points in time when it's made snapshots of your files. Under the hood, most versioned backup systems aren't just copying over everything every time it creates a backup. There's no real need to create multiple copies of the files that haven't changed, and version backups are going to figure that out for you. Once you're getting more than just a single snapshot out of your backup system, there's the question of how often you should be backing up. Ideally, your backups will happen on an automatic schedule, so you don't have to worry about remembering to back up your computer. Then there's a question of how frequently you should be making backups. Maybe you want them once a month, a week, every night, or maybe you want what's called continuous backups, where anytime you create a new file or modify an existing file, your backup software immediately backs it up. Continuous backups are probably overkill for most people, but if you're working on something important, you might want to proactively make a backup copy as you go. My normal backups run every day, so after we record this podcast, I immediately back up our sessions just in case anything goes really wrong during editing and I haven't made that nightly backup yet. Often, backup systems will keep backups in a mix of frequencies. Maybe they'll keep a daily backup for the last week, weekly backups for the last month, and monthly backups for a few months before that. Generally, backups run in the background, and a good backup program will only be copying over new and changed things, so doing backups more frequently won't really slow you down. In fact, each backup takes less time, so it's easier to fit them in. This is a pretty good setup for recovery. You have a lot of recent backups to choose from if you discover something wrong with your computer, so you can probably find one that isn't missing too many recent files, but is missing whatever went wrong. There are also two main types of backups, file backups and what's known as image backups. File backups are just what they sound like, a backup of the files you create. They're really useful for keeping extra copies of the projects you work on or for things like vacation photos. Image backups aren't about photos. They make a full snapshot of your hard drive, files, programs, configurations, everything. One thing to note is that image backups are identical copies of everything on your disk. As we discussed last episode, you can often retrieve deleted files that haven't been overridden yet, because file systems generally don't actually zero out the contents of deleted files, they just mark the spaces for you to reuse. So an image backup, which is an exact image of your disk, might contain bits of files that you thought were deleted. It's not reliable enough if you want to recover deleted files. You should keep backups for longer if you actually want to be able to restore files you deleted in the past. But if you want the file gone, keep in mind that image backups will cause you to have more copies of that file around, some of them that are kind of subtle to find. We'll talk more about securing your backup shortly, but it's important to keep that trade-off in mind. That's also true of file-based backups. If you have something you want deleted, remember that there is a copy of it in your older file-based backups if you're doing versioned backups which is another reason to keep your backups secure, regardless of what type of backups you're doing. It's often harder to see individual files when you're making image backups, though some systems make this easier than others. But if you need to recover your computer or switch to a new one, image backups make life a lot easier. You can just restore everything from them instead of having to reinstall programs or reconfigure operating system settings. If you have a lot of customizations to your computer or use a lot of programs, image backups are really helpful for recovery. Even if you don't think things are that complicated, having them saves a lot of time if, say, your hard drive dies like my laptops did right around when we started this podcast. 
I'm always surprised by how easy it can be to restore a new drive from your old setup when you have image backups. Yeah, but you don't use only image backups, right, Liz? Right. I like to have image backups of my laptop so that I can do this, but a lot of my work takes up a lot of disk space, especially now that we're doing a podcast and those uncompressed raw files are really large. So I don't actually have all of my projects on my laptop, which means they don't all get backed up with my laptop's image-based backups. I store older projects and photos on a network-attached storage device, which is essentially a bunch of external hard drives with some extra bells and whistles, and then I back that up to the cloud. It's good to think about a combination of backups for your different needs, things you want to access regularly versus long-term storage of things you don't want to lose but don't necessarily want to keep on your main computer. Which brings us to different places you could store your backups. The main options are physically somewhere else in your house, either on an external hard drive or a network-attached storage device, or in the cloud. Let's talk a little about storage options that aren't in the cloud first. An external hard drive is probably the simplest to set up, but unless you're attaching it to your home Wi-Fi router, which may or may not be very straightforward, you're going to have to remember to plug it into your computer to do your backups. This might not be too frustrating if your computer always stays plugged in in one place, like a desktop, or if you just never happen to move your laptop. But if you don't regularly connect to your external drive, you're not going to get the regular backups you desire. Instead of physically plugging into an external hard drive, you could attach the drive to your wireless network either directly, which is especially easy if you have a Mac and one of Apple's routers, or through what I mentioned earlier, a network-attached storage device, or a NAS for short. There's a handful of consumer-grade NAS devices that are pretty easy to set up, but they're a lot more expensive than just a hard drive. On the other hand, they usually will allow you to set up a RAID, which stands for a redundant array of independent disks. RAID allows you to use multiple, smaller-capacity, cheaper disk drives and create a single entity that acts like a larger, more expensive, and more reliable disk drive. There are many different RAID configurations. Usually, they allow one or more of the smaller disks to die without losing data. If you use one of those configurations and one of those drives fails, you'll still be able to recover your data from the other drives or re-expand to the original configuration with that built-in protection against a drive failure, but it isn't backup. Those sorts of RAID setups are kind of like tires on trucks. Big trucks have more than just two wheels and more than just two tires on every axle, which helps them safely carry their large loads. If one tire starts to go flat, the load will still be supported by the extra wheels tires, but this doesn't protect against all possible problems for the truck. If the truck gets in an accident, the load might get lost because of that collision. RAID is similar. The protection against the drive failure helps, but it isn't the same as having a separate backup because something with the whole RAID could go wrong. With either external hard drives or a NAS, if something horrible happens in your apartment, like a fire, you won't have another backup. Storing stuff in the cloud, like on Dropbox or Google Drive or another dedicated cloud backup provider, will help protect you from that. Putting your data in the cloud has some risks. If the service gets breached, what you put there could get exposed. Instead of just having the risks of someone getting physical access to your computer and its backup hard drives, like we talked about last episode, you're vulnerable if the service you use gets breached. Or to software bugs, like the time Dropbox accidentally made passwords optional for four hours. There's definitely trade-offs with storing things in the cloud. You can increase your protection against both physical attacks and cloud weaknesses by encrypting your backups with a strong key, just like we talked about for your computer itself last episode. If you're backing up a computer that does hardware disk encryption, like a PC with a TPM chip, backup software probably wouldn't be making backups with that same hardware protection you'll probably want to make sure your backups are also encrypted in case someone gets your backup drives. Also, it wouldn't be a particularly effective backup if it needed that hardware chip to unlock them. If you lost your computer or the chip got damaged, 
you'd completely lose access. One thing to keep in mind is that taking the drive out and making an image copy of that drive would be making a backup that needed the chip to unlock. If you're using an automatic software backup system from within your operating system, this won't be an issue. But it's worth knowing that you can't just plug the drive in elsewhere and make a copy and get a backup you'll be able to decrypt. As a reminder, you should still be concerned about the same issues with software-based encrypted backups as with software-based full-disk encryption for your main drive, like we talked about last episode. If someone compromises the computer you use to access your backups, like by installing a keylogger, you should be concerned about attackers getting access to your strong decryption key. We'll talk about specific backup systems after a quick break. Since I use a Mac, I use the built-in software, Time Machine, to do backups of my laptop. It's pretty nice and has straightforward support for external backups, encryption, and keeping old versions of files around. Windows 10 also has built-in backup software, but it's a little less nicely designed. You've got to do a few more things by hand, and there's nothing out of the box for backing up to a NAS. But it is installed by default and free, so it's not a bad place to start. I actually ended up doing a bunch of customized things in Time Machine anyway. As mentioned before, some of my projects, like this podcast, take up a lot of disk space until they're done, and I like to keep the in-progress work. So I'm a firm believer that I want regular automatic backups of things I use daily, my laptop with my current projects, as well as regular but less frequent backups of things I want longer term, the rest of my projects, photos, MP3s. I'm, I'm kind of old school, and I still mostly use MP3s. So how do you split backups between projects and other files? Do you have them on a different schedule or something? My Time Machine backups run every day when I'm on my home Wi-Fi network because I have it going to the NAS on that network, and I love how automatic that is. The NAS has tons of storage space, but I use some of that for my more manual project backups too. I've allocated my Time Machine backups 150% as much space as my laptop's hard drives because that happens to get me about three months of backups, which is more than enough for recovering things if I have an issue. A lot of my current projects will actually get backed up in the Time Machine, so it's not exactly a split. But I also make sure to manually put them on this NAS so that when it's outside of that three-month period, they're still around. If you use a Chromebook, it encourages you to keep all your files on Google Drive, and it comes down to how much you trust that to be a solid backup. You might also consider copying those files somewhere else in the cloud or onto hard drives in your home. Cloud backups in general, like Google Drive, Dropbox, and iCloud, are really convenient and easy to use with minimal setup. So even if you're using a more conventional desktop or laptop than a Chromebook, it could be a good option if you're primarily concerned with backing up files. I make sure that all my important documents like tax returns are stored in two places, a Google Drive account that's separate from my usual account, and another cloud storage service called rsync.net that's basically really convenient for Linux nerds and really inconvenient for anyone else. I've decided for myself that I'm not extremely concerned about these records being private, and I mostly just want them available, so I don't store them encrypted. I trust these companies to run their systems securely. It may or may not be the right choice, but it seems to work for me. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, there are some inherent risks to having your files in the cloud. But cloud storage is probably the easiest to configure off-site backup for most people, especially when all you need to do is make sure you get in the habit of putting your files into the right folder on your computer. There's also a bunch of dedicated online backup services, which don't necessarily provide fancy online access or two-way sync like Dropbox and Google Drive and those sorts of things, but they are a way to get your files backed up in the cloud. They generally come with software that's easy to use to set up scheduled backups, 
and a few of them even support encrypting your backups on your computer before you send them over so the cloud service doesn't have access to your files. If you get a NAS to do backups to another drive in your home, it usually comes with software you can use to set it up. Some of them have integration with cloud storage services, so you can do your backups to the NAS and then tell your NAS to make another backup of some or all of your files to a cloud service, which gives you a lot more protection, but also a little more risk. Like with many security things, your ideal setup is very personal to your needs and use patterns, and you should make sure to pick something that integrates well into your workflow, and ideally is automatic so you don't have to think about it. Also, backups are only useful if they're working. So even if your backups are on an automatic schedule, you should check them regularly to make sure that they're still happening. We're not suggesting you restore from backup regularly. That's a hassle, and to be truly safe, you'd probably want to make a second backup first. But you should definitely make sure that your backups are happening and they have recent files from time to time. Oh, there's one other good reason to have regular backups. You might have heard of ransomware, software that maliciously encrypts all your files, and then holds the encryption key hostage until you pay the ransom. It's one of the most frustrating types of malware you can get. The original attack was a few years ago and called itself CryptoLocker. Since the files are actually encrypted, there's no way to restore them without paying the ransom. And paying the ransom worked, so people did that and encouraged a lot of copycat attacks. If you've got backups you trust, then you can just wipe your computer and restore from them. The British National Health Service got caught without backups when they were hit by WannaCry, a newer ransomware attack last year. Don't be like them. There is one thing to keep in mind. Ransomware tends to find every file it can access. So if you've got an external hard drive you leave plugged in all the time, it's at risk too. If you're using Windows as built-in backups or something else that copies to a regular hard drive, it is unfortunately a good idea to disconnect your drive when you're not making backups. It's a pain, but you need your backups to be a separate system. Of course, the best way to avoid this is to just not let malware onto your machine in the first place. We'll talk about threats from malware and how to keep your computer software safe in our next episode. Until next time, happy Halloween, and don't let your files turn into ghosts. Loose Leaf Security is produced by me, Liz Dennis. Our theme music, arranged by Liz, is based on excerpts of Venus, the Bringer of Peace, from Gustav Holst's original two-piano arrangement of The Planets. For a transcript of this show and links for further reading about topics covered in this episode, head on over to looseleafsecurity.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at looseleafsecure. If you want to support the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could head to iTunes and leave us a nice review, or just tell your friends about the podcast. Those simple actions can really help us.